Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine and sponsored by Steer. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a wonderful show lined up for you. Today, we will be visited by the author of Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil, a great book on a wildcatter's memories of hunting for black gold, written by Thomas Cochran, a geologist as well as an author now. But first... I want to talk to you about our latest issue of Shale Magazine, in which our cover is Sarah Ortwine, who is the president of XTO Energy, of course, a company, an energy company that's based in beautiful Houston, Texas. This is definitely an issue that you don't want to miss. And we were actually pretty happy and proud to have her on the cover um, as there's just not a lot of women executives uh, in the energy sector. And so we were able to tell her story, talk about the great company XTO, as well as um, just kind of introducing uh, our listenership and our fan base to XTO, the energy company. So be sure to go to shale, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. Again, that's shellmag.com to read the story in its entirety. And now it's time to bring on the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It's amazing. Let's jump into a report from Wood McKinsey. It's a, a project uh, that LNG demands from the Asia market will quadruple by 2030. Um, what does this mean for America uh, and our natural gas producers and exporters? There's a lot of discussion going on in the United States and uh, demand and, of course, expansion in this area. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this will affect us. Well, it's huge uh, for the United States. J- Japan and China are currently the two biggest markets for, for LNG coming out of the United States and will continue to be. And, uh, you know, the Asian markets, the, the economies in the Pacific Rim and, and uh, China, Japan, India are basically the fastest growing economies in the world. And uh, it's not a surprise that their demand for LNG is going to increase significantly. And, you know, in China in particular, because China spent all of the 90s and the first decade of this century building hundreds and hundreds of coal-fired power plants. And now they've signed on to the Paris Climate Accords and have to start reducing their carbon footprint. And they're going to do that by, in part by uh, replacing uh, many of those coal-fired plants with natural gas-fired power plants like we've done in the United States to, to reduce our own carbon emissions. So that's great. It's wonderful. You know, it's it's new markets. We need all the markets we can get for, for natural gas here in the United States. We have so much of it and hundreds and hundreds of years of supply of it. So uh, the more markets, the better. And, uh, you know, it'll just, uh, in, you know, encourage uh, producers to keep looking for that natural gas here in the United States. Well, you know, LNG is good. It, it, it burns cleaner. It, it's a it's a it's a really good fuel. 
uh, source as well. So glad to hear that. Well, despite um, that and other optimistic reports about the demand for natural gas, the price of gas dropped below $4 this week. So my question is, what's causing that? And then also, um, do you believe it's going to go back up? Well, <laughs> I think what's caused it is actually irrational exuberance uh, early in the winter when we had that nice, really cold spell uh, early in November, uh, for, you know, several weeks uh, ahead of when it normally gets cold in a lot, a lot of parts of the country. And, uh, you know, you had had, and we still have very low storage inventories of natural gas around the country, well below the five-year average range. And, um, but now, you know, now we're seeing forecasts for an extended kind of warm trend up in the Northeast and, and across much of the country uh, into January. And that just, you know, had the effect of uh, causing uh, traders to say, hey, oops, uh, we kind of pushed the price up too high here in early November, and now we're going to push it back down. So it goes from, I think it got up to 490 actually one day uh, in November, and uh, now it's, you know, in the mid threes, between three and four, and uh, hopefully it can stay at least that high throughout the rest of the winter. But if, if we continue to have a warm winter throughout January and into February, then, you know, it could go right back down below $3 again. Very interesting. Um, how it just kind of bobs up and down just the same way as uh, crude oil does. An interesting article that came out in the Wall Street Journal uh, published an editorial this week, David, and it was talking about how the U.S. shale killed OPEC. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, these titles, boy, those are clickbait titles. That's a clickbait title right there. There you go. And, um, of course, I'm wondering, um, that can't be right, or, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's right, but I still want uh, to, to know what you think about OPEC. Is it really dead? Well, no. And, and you know, I mean, my response to that is that, no, it's, it's uh, not only not dead. OPEC is actually probably as influential uh, where oil prices are concerned as it's ever been, and, and frankly, much more effective at trying to influence them than it's ever been since at least the 1970s when we had the major oil shocks. Um, yeah, I mean, the last couple of months, they, they kind of lost control because the Saudis and the Russians misjudged uh, the impact of the new sanctions on Iran that the United States was implementing. They didn't anticipate that the U.S. was going to grant waivers to India and China uh, to continue to do business with Iran without sanctions. And as a result, Russia and Saudi Arabia dramatically oversupplied the market for crude for almost two full months and created a you know, pretty large glut on the market that uh, they just last week finally reached an agreement to try to deal with, uh, with the other OPEC member countries. And so it's going to take several months to dry up that surplus and rebalance the market and, and the price decrease for crude oil uh, that's been the result of that. Uh, is a problem for everybody now, but that doesn't mean OPEC's dead. That just means they misjudged the market for a couple of months. They're, they're far from dead. And even though the United States is the biggest producer in the world and, you know, produces more every day and, and continues to gain influence, uh, the, the, 
the contention that OPEC is somehow uh, dead and lost its influence on the markets is just silly. Well, you know, when I look at OPEC and I realize, um, you know, it's regulated by all of these um, different countries that, that they're regulated by their governments. I mean, it, it kind of makes me feel like that is the structure that they can pull back, whereas in the U.S., shell plays, it's impossible. So in some ways, OPEC is so vital to continue in some ways to kind of keep a handle on pricing uh, of, of the price of crude and, and natural gas. That would just be my thoughts. We often hear about concerns from landowners and environmental issues about the pipeline projects these days. It's just huge. And it's going on and on. We all remember the North Dakota pipeline uh, fiasco, Um, especially with so many new projects, though, uh, being brought on by oil and gas coming out of the Permian Basin. Um, A station in Austin, KXAN, had a report last week that the new Kender Morgan line will be transporting gas from West Texas to a terminal near Katy. So that's kind of interesting. What's going on there? Yeah. uh, And, you know, it was an interesting report about uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline is is going from a a hub way out in West Texas called Waha uh, and transporting gas over to Katy. There's a terminal near there where they're getting interconnect with another line to move the gas, you know, on uh, down the Gulf Coast. but it's in the process going through the Texas Hill Country and in a part of the of the state where there hasn't been a lot of pipeline construction in the past. Um, and so you have uh, companies dealing with landowners who who frankly haven't ever had to deal with pipeline companies before and negotiate damage agreements with them and things like that. And so it's it's raising concerns among landowners and and of course that immediately means the activist groups are going to jump in and start making allegations of all sort of wild environmental concerns that we see all the time um, in this industry and always have to deal with. But but it does point out the legitimate tension that is always there between the oil industry and landowners and and the necessity of of these pipeline companies and even upstream companies at times having to negotiate damage agreements with farmers and ranchers for the right to move a pipeline across their their countryside. And, and you know, my family has been involved in those things for many years. We, we've owned a, a, a small farm in Goliad County for a long, long time. And um, you always end up uh, with conflicts to some extent, but as, as the pipeline company, as, as Kendra Morgan pointed out in that article, well over 90% of the time, sometimes 99% of the time, you're, you're able to negotiate a damage agreement with the landowner and there's no conflict. Um, but there's always some exceptions to that and, uh, and you can end up in litigation and, and uh, landowners you know, complaining to their member of the legislature, which then results in hearings and things like that. So it's just one of those aspects of the industry where you have this tension uh, that exists. And, uh, you know, most companies like Kinder Morgan do a great job of, of mitigating those things. But there are times when, when conflict is just inevitable and, and then you end up with news stories in the in TV, TV stations and newspapers and things like that. And uh, it's just a part of the business. I would imagine uh, with Katy, Texas, the expansion that you see and all of the uh, people moving in there, it, it's it's definitely changed over the last 10 years from being more rural to 
more urban. It's just incredible how that area has changed. Exactly. It's beautiful. We'll keep an eye on it, though, and see how that, that works out. Um, but we definitely, in closing, need infrastructure and pipelines uh, if we want to continue to enjoy those low prices at the gas pump as well. Well, that and and the, the environmental benefits of being able to use natural gas and power generation instead of coal. And keeping all those trucks off the freeways, which we have to yeah, share boy, the roads yeah. with. <laughs> well, David, yeah. that is all the time we have for this week. Look forward to having you back on next week, which I'm sure we'll have more interesting topics on oil, gas, and, of course, the geopolitical scene. Great. I'll look forward to it. And with that, we do have to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll be visited with Thomas Cochran, geologist and author of Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. In the Oil Patch Radio Show is proud to bring you this week's Energy Minute, produced by shalemag.com. Here's Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your current industry update. This is Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your Energy Minute. After a big stock sell-off, the Dow Jones and S&P indexes are both off by 7.8% in the month of December. If these losses hold or get worse, this will be the worst December for markets since the Great Depression. With U.S. and Russian production at record levels, there could simply be too much oil on the market. This will translate into lower gasoline prices over the holidays, but many are worried about industry profits. WTI lost $3.25 yesterday to end the day at $45.91 per barrel. Listen to In the Oil Patch Radio and keep up with the oil and gas industry online at shalemag.com. now it's time to bring on our guest, Tom Cochran, who is a geologist. Uh, Tom, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. We were excited to receive your latest book, Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil. Um, and basically, it's memories of you as a wildcatter hunting for black gold, correct? Correct. And I'm curious because um, it, it's kind of unusual to find books that uh, are an easy read, so to speak, that uh, talk about oil and gas, um, and especially you actually being a part of the oil and gas industry and, and, and kind of taking us through what your life was like um, as a wildcatter searching for uh, black gold, if you will. And so I'm really excited to interview you and talk about your book and introduce it to our audience. But first, I want to start with a little bit about you. Um, and so you seem like a pretty uh, normal guy as far as uh, you your parents were born in Brooklyn, New York. Your mom was a working nurse at the Navy hospital and your dad uh, was in the Navy himself. Um, and so you guys kind of uh, are, are the average American family um, who, uh, it, you know, you're, in your book, you go into your beginnings. Let's talk a little bit about your beginnings. Yes, I, I think I have kind of a unique viewpoint of the U.S. And it seems like we have such a uh, variety of opinion from different parts of the country. And I spent my first 26 years in upstate New York, and then I spent 25 years in Oklahoma and Texas uh, in the oil business, and uh, then I've spent the last 30 years out here on the California coast. So I have the viewpoint from the three different areas, and uh, there's quite a lot of difference. (laughs) Very, very much. Now, in your book, which... Um, I have to say it was an extremely interesting book. Um, It it was 
had really great high points, funny, real, very real. Um, but it really explained, you know, your your path. And so I want to start with um, how your life kind of begins uh, in the oil business because you hadn't started out with that way, that way. So let's talk a little about how you fell into being an oil man. I, I went, did my undergraduate uh, work in geology, studies in geology at uh, SUNY Binghamton. Uh, state New York, and then I spent a couple of years at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, I never had any courses in petroleum geology. Uh, I didn't think that I would ever go into petroleum geology, and I was basically interested in glaciers and glaciology, and I had spent a summer uh, in a glaciological field camp in Juneau, Alaska, and I was hot to do that, but I was married. and, and children kept sneaking along on us. <laughs> they just keep popping up. <laughs> and so at one point I had to quit graduate school and go to work. And I went through 35 interviews. It was a time that they weren't hiring geologists and oil companies weren't hiring them particularly. But I did get hired by uh, Pan American Petroleum, which was Amoco, which is now BP. And uh, they sent me off to Oklahoma. And I had never been to Oklahoma or Texas, and I'd never taken a course in uh, in uh, petroleum geology, and I had um, knew nothing about the oil industry, and I had uh, never seen a drilling oil well, and, and I'd never worked for a big uh, corporation. The only other job I'd ever had was four years of teaching um, uh, junior and senior high school science. So, comparing nowadays, uh, Thomas, to back when you were hired, do you think it's that easy now? Like, would you have had the same opportunity to just walk in and get hired now versus way back when, uh, when you got hired? Because your book really goes into the the 35 interviews or, you know, close to it. (laughs) Very interesting what you had to go through on those interviews and how you got your job. So it's really a a fun read, but um, it, it probably wouldn't be the case anymore this day and age, correct? No, I don't. I, you know, I, I am surprised that I got a job in petroleum geology there. And uh, uh, I just connected with my interviewer, who was a division geologist, and, uh, you know, I became very good friends through the years. Uh, and, and I never asked him. I always meant to ask him, why did he hire me? <laughs> well, it could have and, been, like you said, that personal connection that he just kind mm-hmm. of felt, which isn't that also wildcat or way like it's a feel. Um, and sometimes it pans out and sometimes it doesn't. But usually um, wildcatters, when they feel something, um, typically now they have tools. But way back when they were really just going by gut instinct a lot of the times. Yeah, back in the 60s when I began, this was a time when uh, technology was really taking off. Uh, All kinds of new tools were being used in uh, looking for oil and gas. Of course, they had been used for years, but I mean, they really got into the the height of technology. So, uh, uh, you know, we were using seismic and we were using um, uh, new new kinds of electric logs that... uh, um, the, the initial electric logs were pretty simple and uh, pretty hard to read, and you still you still had to learn how to how to how to read samples. And um, samples are little bits of ground up pieces of rock, which uh, 
as a geologist, as a student in there, I never looked at a little round up, ground up pieces of rock. We looked at hand specimens of rock. And then to, to have to figure out what you're drilling through from um, little bitty pieces of uh, ground up uh, rock is uh, pretty difficult. So, Especially if those rocks have oil in them. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. So it was a whole new, uh, whole new thing for me, and uh, and since I didn't know anything, and my my district geologist said he didn't think I'd last long. There weren't any glaciers in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> and I went out to prove him wrong. So I took every uh, service company course I could take. I took them in, um, uh, you know, reading different kinds of electric logs and, and uh, drill stem testing and, uh, you know, all the, all the different kinds of fracking and, and all the different things that, uh, that they, uh, you know, offered. So I was not about to, uh, to uh, knuckle under and quit because uh, somebody said, you know, you're not going to last long around here. So, I uh, proved him wrong. And within two years, I was spending uh, 50% of the, the district budget. So Excellent, excellent. Now, Thomas, when we return, I want to talk about, in your book, Chapter 5, you talk about uh, ramping up and a meeting to meet the wizard. So we're going to get into that, but we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. We're back. You're listening to In the Wall Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Thomas Cochran, a geologist who has written a book called Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil. It's memories of uh, you, Thomas, when you were in the oil game. Um, in chapter five on your book, you're talking about ramping up and meeting the wizard. Tell us, tell me a little bit about um, that chapter and what it means for you. Okay, the wizard uh, was the exploration manager for Pan American Petroleum. And he was, we were in Oklahoma City where our office was, but his, the main office was in Tulsa. So, and generally a, uh, a junior geologist like I was at the time, or a geologist, maybe I'd been promoted by then, uh, never got to talk to the updip management. I mean, oil companies are like most major oil com- major companies are are highly structured, and you present something at a lower level, and then somebody carries it on up, and so forth. But the wizard had found uh, West Edmond oil field, which is about covers uh, oh, I'd say about a township and a half, and was drilled on like 40 acre spacing. So it was a big, big oil field, and he drilled it. Uh, in the forties. And of course we were in the, in the late sixties by then. And, uh, my boss figured that he would fire me because I had a different interpretation of the field than he originally had. And, and my 
my district geologist boss was always trying to put me into a tough situation that I had to figure out some way to get out of. So, so anyway, he sent me off to the wizard to uh, to present this deal on uh, same formation, very close to the field that he had discovered. And of course, I read all the company. Uh, memos that he had written at that time. And of course, he hadn't read them in uh, 25 years, but I had a copy of them in my in my little grubby hand. And when he said, oh, I'll remember it this way, I don't remember it that way. I said, oh, no, you said such and such uh, in your memo, so-and-so. And uh, my division geologist friend, I see him sinking down under the table. He figured I'm going to get fired right away for disagreeing with this guy. And uh, after I read him what he wrote and uh, gave him my interpretation and he agreed with it, he said, okay. Excellent. Well, you know, sometimes money seems to trump. Okay. Well, you know what? That was my opinion a long time ago. Maybe I forgot about it. Um, interesting. And, and, you know, as as the book goes on and, and I'm reading the book, it's talking about how you're moving through these different chapters going from these big oil companies, um, some that are still around today, uh, have changed names, changed hands, but still around today. And then you find yourself leaving Pan Am and opportunity is knocking for you. What opportunity is knocking for you? Well, I, I had a really unique experience with uh, Pan American. I think that most geologists didn't have. Um, I got assigned to a project that incidentally was uh, a Mississippian um, um, formation, which was a fracture formation at the time. And we cored. I mean, it was led by a PhD who did the study and we cored all these uh, wells, 500 feet long cores through this very dense uh, fractured rock to look at the fractures. And and after they spent all this money on it and they drilled about 10 wells and the wells weren't um, of the caliber that they wanted them, uh, they said, okay, we're going to farm all this out. So they sent uh, Dr. Tommy Thompson on to a new project and they said, Tom Cochran, this is now your deal. We've got 100,000 acres in here. We want you to farm it all out. And I farmed it out to everybody in the industry, and I got to meet every small independent oil company out there. And uh, and the company would only, like, farm them out, like, one location at a time. Uh, and they would say, well, if we drill this well and it's a good well, we want to be able to drill the offset. And, um, you know, we don't want, if we drill a good well, then somebody else jumps in here. We want the option on the next one. So I said, well, they won't give you the option on the next one, but you write me the letter for the next one. And the instant that we log it, I will, I will take it to committee and say, you want the next one. And it worked out very well. And I was never paid anything by any of these other companies, but. When I got out there as an independent, every one of them was very willing to talk to me because I because I'd given them such a good favor during my days with with Amico. So, you know, uh, Thomas, I couldn't agree with you more. It seems as though the um, energy industry, as complicated as vast as it is, truly in this business, reputation and, of course, um, you know how you are perceived really still matters even to today. Um, if you're an expert, of course, that goes a long way in the oil and gas sector. When we return from break, I want to get back into your book on another section, uh, the making of a wildcatter, and then, of course, talking about the wild days in the oil patch. But we do have to take a quick break. 
You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. Email us, info at shalemag.com. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three and six person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side owner study. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Thomas Cochran, who is a geologist who has just finished up a book called Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil. Thomas, uh, I want to jump into a little bit more of your book, Chapter 11, The Making of a Wildcatter. Um, let's talk about that briefly. What is a wildcatter? A wildcat, by definition, is a well that's drilled more than a mile from production or more than a location from production. So some things are spaced on less than uh, 640. So it, it would be a, a further away than the, than the spacing unit. So that's a wildcat. Uh, big companies, uh, what, they're, what they're looking for is to develop fields. And you don't find fields unless you drill wildcats. And nobody in the industry likes the name wildcat. Because everybody knows wildcats, you only are one in ten is successful worldwide, and uh, I think that modern technology has brought that way down. But uh, in those days, we thought one in ten was uh, the ratio of successful wildcatting to find a new field. So nobody ever said they were drilling a wildcat. They said we're drilling an exploratory test. And I, I don't think I ever even heard the term wildcat probably until I became an independent uh, out there. I don't, I don't, the company never used it. I mean, we were hired to uh, look for oil and gas, and uh, they had 100,000 acres out in uh, this county or that county, and they said, find oil and gas on it. Well, you find oil and gas by drilling wildcats. <laughs> so, so my first wildcat for uh, Amico. In fact, it was the second well I drilled. The first well I was told to uh, to just do a report. We wanted to drill this offset well, so I so so it was the very second report I ever wrote for the company. And they had all this acreage, and it was going to expire in a, in a couple of years. And they said we've got to do something with this acreage. And I looked at it, and it was 
supposedly beyond the limit of the sand that we were looking for. But I looked at I looked at seismic and I could see that there was a thickening in the area and I and and I said, well, I think there's sand out here. So I located my wildcat uh, three three and a half miles past the drawn limit on all the company maps. And everybody said, you're crazy. This is a sure thing, dry hole. And um, 150 wells were drilled in the township after the discovery of that of that wildcat. So, so I was bitten by the wildcat bug, and uh, I drilled. Well, let's see. I drilled five or six other wildcats for Amico while I was Pan American while I was while I was still employed for them. And through my career, I've drilled a very large percentage of wildcats. And again, I've never used the term wildcat. Uh, but I was bitten by the wildcat bug, and I, and I have kind of a cutesy section in the book about how the leprechauns hid, hid the oil from me, and you go out and you drill the well, and it's a dry hole, and yet, and yet um, you know there's oil there someplace because you've drawn a map, and, and your map's not wrong. It's just you didn't find the oil or the gas. So um, oftentimes I would put a new investor group together, and then we'd drill a second well. And one or two of them, I drilled three or four wells before we ever found the field, and with three or four different sets of of investors. So, you know, you lost your money once, you don't want to lose it on the second one. Most definitely. Now, in your book, Chapter 18, we talk about you talk about wild days uh, in the oil patch, and and one thing is for sure, there has always uh, been a boom or a bust. But I, I'm curious to ask you. You know, way back when the oil patch, I believe, was one way. Now, with technology, shale plays, um, a lot of things have changed. It's also uh, a lot more global. So, I want to ask you to uh, tell me a little bit about the differences, uh, how you feel the oil patch has changed between boom and bust over the years to to now. Okay, I think that horizontal drilling in uh in oil shale has really changed the entire industry from here on in because we found, I mean, they're saying that there's more oil and gas in uh, shale deposits than there is all the oil and gas that's been found and produced to date. And and I believe that. So uh, the problem with shale is shale is impermeable and you've got to, in order to get the oil and gas out, you've got to fracture it. So, that's why the new frack jobs come in, and they've got some problems with the fracking. And uh, I think the industry is smart enough to figure that figure out how to do it do it right, and not create earthquakes or uh, screw up water tables. But it's a it, it is a whole new game, and I think geologists you're going to see a lot fewer geologists in the oil in the oil industry because I, I mean I, I can teach you to find oil in shale in in 15 minutes. So what do you need a geologist for? Interesting. Well, I'd like for you to teach me off show, <laughs> off the show. You know, you do mention that in the book, and I did want to talk about that, that, um, you know, geologists, you believe, will become uh, obsolete or uh less relevant in oil shell and that it's a large part has to do with the technology that's evolving and um, being able to detect with all kinds of different uh, technology that is uh, created um, for today's shell place well i haven't actually seen any of them as i said i've invested in in wells that are uh, in the shale play and they've 
certainly they're turning out quite well for me. Uh, but but I haven't actually seen it, and I'm I'm going to come back to uh, Oklahoma in June of this year in Texas, and I want to visit some of these wells and some of these companies and get a, a more thorough breakdown than what we see on on. Um, you know, the internet. So most definitely. And I think that that's important. I think that the discussion needs to evolve to a much larger scale. Um, when we return Thomas from break, I want to get on uh, the topic of your, uh, your, your thoughts on how the oil and gas has changed over the years, how much and how relevant is OPEC versus, you know, how, who we are today and how the oil industry has changed, but we do have to take a quick break. You're listening to in the oil patch radio show, and we'll be right back. Oilfield experts have been providing parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us to get the right part right now. Here's the number, so write it down. Oilfield experts, 210-471-1923. And we're back. Our guest today is Thomas Cochran author of Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil. And Thomas, thank you so much for coming on and uh, and letting me interview you on this wonderful book that you have written um, about your life as uh, being an oil man. And, uh, and now um, I want to just change gears a little bit and, and talk a little bit about, you know, you've pretty much have worked almost a lot of uh, the majority of your life in oil and gas. Now you're uh, living in California. Uh, you're an oil man, and now you're also an environmentalist. Which, by the way, I think we should all be environmentalist um, as well and be concerned of the environment. But uh, since you've been in oil and gas for so long, I'm I'm curious to your thoughts on um, how uh, attitudes from way back when uh 70s 60s 70s and 80s have has evolved to now the the modern day oil man and then i also want to ask you about opec and your opinion on on where opec ends up um because of shell place so talk to me about attitudes we on the west coast here we joke about the flyover states and uh uh you know and there's a lot of uh rivalry i think between different parts of the country but we really, you know, we really think alike. I, I think that people in the Midwest are uh, environmentally oriented as well as uh, we are uh, here on the West Coast or the East Coast. Uh, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of the change of attitude has to do with whether you live in a rural environment or an urban environment. And what what's the percentage? Nine, over ninety percent of people live in urban environments. I mean, I was raised in uh, in a rural environment, and I chose to retire in a rural environment because, you know, that's what I'm used to. But my children are all raised in cities, and they all live in cities. Uh, and and most of us is true. I mean, if more than ninety percent of us are living in cities, we're going to have urban attitudes, uh, and urban attitudes are considerably different than what than what we see in the rural. Uh, I think OPEC, you talked about OPEC. I think OPEC changed our whole attitude in the business. Before OPEC, oil was, what, $4 a barrel maximum? I was looking at buying an oil field to uh, try to try to uh, um, recomplete in zones that hadn't been completed in. 
and I had this deal all wound up, and OPEC came through in 1973 and uh, took over took over the oil in the Midwest, and the oil price jumped, and uh, suddenly I didn't have a deal any longer. <laughs> so uh, we got into a whole new game, and then OPEC was able to produce the kind of oil they produced, and they came up with uh, uh, allowables for the different countries, which to keep the uh, price high, and they're still there. I mean, Saudi Arabia still can control the price of oil. They can make profit on a barrel of oil for le- that uh, at less than $10 a barrel. And we can't look at this frack oil uh, for, what, 40 or $50 a barrel? If, if the Saudis and the Russians uh, flood the market and run it down, uh, we're going to – shale oil and fracking is going to um, have to diminish or figure out some way to, uh, to compensate them. That may be uh, – that might be a tariff on imported oil. Well, you know, Thomas, the, the the you know, you bring up a good point, but I also believe that as as we've been uh, in the Shell Revolution for the last ten years, there is technology that we're starting to see come online that actually actually is starting to capture this. Operators, you're starting to see them use it to to reuse it to either um, they use it uh, for their generators or they reuse it uh, to actually frack more wells. So the same thing is happening with water. Water as well. We they've used in the past when it first started fresh water. Now they're actually taking the brackish water, recycling it, and putting it back in. So, what what I believe is happening is there has to be a period of time with within uh, a certain period of time that allows the operators and of course the 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 millions and millions of dollars that they spend on research and evolving newer technology that will actually do this because. If this is going to start in other countries, shell and fracking, uh, you know, on land, then uh, the United States is probably the best country to be the leader in technology to, of course, uh, use it in other countries as well. Because I don't necessarily believe that other countries are really going to spend a lot of money and research on developing greener ways uh, and better ways. I think we we are in the lead, too. And, and one of the problems that we have here in the U.S. is that most of the oil and grass regulations are, are state regulations. We don't have we don't. The only federal regulations, as I understand it, are, are offshore uh, federal land or in federal lands. So we've got an awful lot of difference from one state to the next and what the rules are. And, you know. I think that the industry knows what good practices are, and because they don't have the rule in North Dakota or someplace, doesn't mean they shouldn't follow good uh, good oil practices. And that's one thing that uh, I mean, if we want, if we don't want the if we don't want frac oil uh, fracturing of shale cut off from us by state laws. Uh, we need to do it right. I couldn't agree with you more. And so, Thomas, that is the end of our show, unfortunately. But I do, before we let you go, I do want to uh, let our listeners know where to get this great book. It's, a, it's an interesting read. It makes a great Christmas present. Tornadoes, Rattlesnakes, and Oil. Um, Thomas, where can they go to get your book? You can order it in bookstores um, everywhere. They can, they can get it from uh, Baker Taylor or Ingram. 
And it is on Amazon also. It can be purchased from Amazon. Excellent. You also have a website for, for them to listen to some of the uh, other radio shows that you've been on, as well as uh, looking and seeing where the local stores, they can pick up your book. And that's riverbeachpress.com, correct? Correct. Correct. Again, that's River Beach press.com. Thomas, thank you for, for uh, coming in today and, and talking to us, or thank you for letting us interview you today. A wonderful book, excellent book, and I'm so excited that I got to interview you, um, and good luck with your uh, book sales. Thank you. All right. I enjoyed being on. Thanks again, Thomas, for being my guest, and congratulations, because you are the topic of this week's trivia question. Be the first person to email the correct answer to this trivia question to radio at shellmag.com and you will have a chance to win a $75 gift certificate to Fogo de Chao, the amazing Brazilian steakhouse. Today's question is, what is the title of Thomas Cochran's new book that we talked about on today's show? Well, that's all the time that we have for this show, but please be sure to like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash in the oil patch. Or follow us on Twitter at ShellMag. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G. And if you have any questions for me, or if you have questions on oil and gas, I encourage you to email me at radio at shellmag.com. Again, that's radio at S-H-A-L-E. MAG.com. And you never know, you might be hearing your question on the radio and getting your answer. Well, that's going to wrap up another great show. See you next week with more exciting news and insightful interviews. Until then, adios. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.